Hi, you're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Curiosity.com. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you'll learn about the extreme weirdness of the birthday paradox. Then, you'll learn about the hidden science of LED lighting with help from one of the pioneers of LEDs, George Crawford. Let's satisfy some curiosity. All right, I've got a puzzle for you. If you gathered a group of random strangers into a room, what are the odds that any two share a birthday? Better yet, how many people would you need for there to be a 50-50 chance of there being at least one shared birthday in the room? Well, I'll give you a hint. It is not nearly as many as you think. And that's why this problem is called the birthday paradox. So let's set this up. As with any thought experiment, we first need to address our assumptions. First, let's assume none of the people are twins and their birthdays are completely random. So what's the answer? Well, the number of people you would need for there to be a 50% chance of a birthday match is 23. That's right. I know there are 365 days in the year, and this sounds impossible, but it's 23. Please don't get mad. Here's how you figure this out. Let's say I'm person A, and Ashley is person B. The probability that Ashley and I share a birthday is a 1 in 365, or about a 0.003% chance. There's only one comparison to consider here. We either match or we don't. Now, if we add a person, person C, things get more complicated. This doesn't add a second comparison, but it instead adds two, because person C now has to compare to both me and Ashley. Adding a person D means that we now have to consider six comparisons. In a room of 23 people, there are 253 pair combinations to consider. Now, naturally, our brains have a really hard time imagining all those pairs that don't involve us. To prove that we only need 23 people, we have to work backward. Ashley has a 364 out of 365 chance of not matching my birthday. So person C has a 363 out of 365 chance of not matching either of us. Person D then has a 362 out of 365 probability of a unique birthday. And this goes all the way down. 361, 360, 359. And then when it gets to person W, that's the 23rd person, that person has a 342 out of 365 chance. Still with me? Okay, now if we convert those fractions to percentages and multiply them, the result is a 49.27% chance that nobody in the group shares a birthday with anybody else. Or in other words, there is a 50.73% chance that there is a birthday match in the room somewhere. We can use this type of thinking to analyze why people play the lottery. Seeing lottery winners on TV causes us to overestimate our own chances of winning. It's really hard to reconcile the difference between the chance that I will win, which is vanishingly small, versus the chance that someone will win, which is clearly much bigger because people win the lottery, right? Our brains just aren't built to consider that difference, though. And that is why it seems like a paradox. There's a cutting-edge piece of technology that's helping to boost our energy efficiency and slow the effects of climate change. But this breakthrough tech isn't new. It's been around since the 1960s, and it's in everything from car brake lights to flat-screen TVs. 
I'm talking about light-emitting diodes, or LEDs. LEDs work completely differently from your garden variety light bulb. And today, we're going to find out just how they work from a pioneer of the technology. George Crawford has been a leader in the development and implementation of light-emitting diode technology for nearly 50 years. He was recently named a winner of the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering. That's a prize of 1 million British pounds awarded to an engineer or group of engineers responsible for a groundbreaking innovation that has been of benefit to humanity. And today, he's going to tell us just what makes LEDs work so well. Yeah, a conventional light bulb, as you know, is a glass kind of envelope with a filament inside it, and you heat it up. You pass current through the filament, and it glows. It gets hot, and you can see it. It's actually kind of a heater that gives off light by accident because it's not very efficient and generates a lot of heat. And so most of that's all waste. You're not trying to heat a room with the light bulb. You're trying to light the room, and there's an enormous amount of heat coming off. So a light bulb efficiency of it is inherently low and furthermore that hot wire burns out so it's a it's programmed to fail after a certain amount of time usually after a couple thousand hours or something like that so you're generating a lot of heat and it fails before too long an led on the other hand is a semiconductor device made out of a little chip of semiconductor that has a thing we call a, a junction in a between P-type and N-type material that we achieve by doping. But at any rate, you pass current through this thing, and it generates light if you pick the right elements. And the elements we use are 3-5. We call them 3-5 because it's from the 3-5 column of the periodic table, like gallium arsenide phosphide, gallium aluminum arsenide, things like that, that are used in these materials because when you pass current through them, they give visible light. Other Elements might give infrared light or very little light at all if they are not the right type of semiconductors. So you have to pick the semiconductor carefully. It has to have a certain structure so that it can be efficient to generate light, and it has to have a certain composition of elements so that it can give visible light. And if you do that, it's a natural process. If you could make the perfect LED, there would be no heat involved at all. There, there is not much heat. As you, again, know if you've used LEDs, they, they get warm, but they don't get hot. Inherently, the junction itself doesn't generate very much heat at all, and if you made a perfect junction, it wouldn't generate any heat. It's a totally natural process that, in principle, could go on forever, and in principle, could be 100% efficiency. Now, again, that's all in principle, because as I say, you have inherent losses with pretty much anything that getting the current in and getting the current out and so forth. But I mean, there are tens of thousands of hours. Properly made LED light bulb goes many tens of thousands of hours because it's a natural process. You're not burning up the semiconductor chip like you're burning up that filament in a light bulb. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So you're saying that the main difference is really that it's the current itself that's generating light, not that it's like, you know, burning something or lighting something else up. Right. The current in a chip going from this P-type to N-type across these two materials, it's a little bit like, I don't know, like water going over a waterfall or something. It just, you know, the current just pushes it over and it just flows down there. And that, as it flows along, it, it throws these photons out and it's light. But the water is all still there. So does it basically come down to the right elements then? It's like you have to choose the right elements that will glow for the best LED? Right. It, it comes down to choosing the right elements. For example, to take what binary, we talk about binary, it's two elements. Gallium arsenide is a very well-known common binary 
3,5 compound, but it, get, it emits only in the infrared. It's efficient, but it only emits in the infrared. That's not what we want. Gallium phosphide, on the other hand, emits in the green, but it's not the right type of semiconductor. There, there, there are things we call direct and indirect band gaps, and it's a little esoteric as to what that is about. But basically, direct semiconductors can be efficient light emitters. Indirect semiconductors are not. So gallium phosphide emits in the visible, but it's not efficient because it's an indirect semiconductor. And the mixture of the two, making an alloy, gives you a gallium arsenide phosphide mixture that at the right mixture, you can get red light out of it. And that's what Nick did, who's one of the other recipients of this award, and he really started off the high-efficiency LED road, because that was the first visible direct band gap emitting device, and he made it red LEDs and lasers, and that started everybody off. When he did that, everybody could see, wow, okay, now we have a semiconductor that is in the visible, and it's a direct band gap, and could lead to very high-efficiency red light at least. Everything follows from that. Every, all of this other work that's followed over the last 50 years follows from that. Basically, it's like I, this one element has this quality we like, but it's bad in this other way. And this this other element has a different quality that we like. We put them together and then we have a good LED. That's exactly what Nick did. Yeah, that's exactly what Nick Kolniak did was he had the gallium arsenide that he knew was high efficiency infrared and gallium phosphide that was visible but low efficiency. And the combination about, of more or less half and half gave a red emitting light in the direct. Yeah, that's basically what he did. But then after that, of having that compound gallium arsenide phosphide, people went on to the quaternary, the four element things that I mentioned later that took us even to from red to yellow. We made the first yellow back in early 70s using actually gallium arsenide phosphide with uh, incorporating nitrogen in it, which is another story. But then on with the very high brightness, red, orange, and yellow, it's gallium indium aluminum phosphide. So that's used for uh, red, yellow, and amber, and still is used in stoplights today. I mean, we developed that in 1990. <laughs> Anytime you see red or amber LEDs, it basically uses that technology and has ever since and will for the foreseeable future. So things like car tail lights, traffic signals, moving message panels, all kinds of applications where you see red or amber use those four elements. And then the other the blue and the green use the nitride materials, which are basically the same, but you put in nitrogen instead of phosphorus on them. So to summarize, to make an LED, you have to combine the right elements to get the kind of light and the kind of semiconductor you want. Then you just send a current through it and it glows for tens of thousands of hours. No hot wires or burnt out bulbs to worry about. Again, that was George Crawford, a leader in the development of LED technology and a recipient of the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering. You can find links to learn more in the show notes. Ashley, it's recap time. Yes. Starting with the fact that the birthday paradox says that if you get 23 strangers together in a room, there's a 50-50 chance that two of them will share a birthday. It's the same reason that people play the lottery. It's virtually impossible for you to win. But it's almost guaranteed that someone will win. So it seems like you have a much higher chance of winning yourself. Cody, you know, in my family, I only have to get five people together in a room for there to be a 100% chance to share a birthday because my brother has my same birthday and he's two years younger than me. What? Yeah. Wow. 
My immediate and semi-extended family, I've already got a handful. My brother's fiance and I, same birthday. My niece on my wife's side, same birthday. So yeah, just looking at like my like my closest friends and immediate family, it's yeah, multiples. Multiples. Yeah, it seems so improbable and yet, I mean, it's it's bound to happen, you know? Yes. And we also learned that with conventional light bulbs, you're seeing light that's produced from a filament that gets heated up by an electrical current. And that heat is just wasted energy, so efficiency is low. But with LED lights, different combinations of elements cause different color currents. So what you're seeing is the current itself. It's a totally natural process. So when it's done really well, it can last tens of thousands of hours with very little to no waste. And the key to doing it really well is coming up with stable mixtures of elements so they can produce different types of lights that are more efficient as advances are made. Red was the first color of LED, which is kind of weird when you're used to light bulbs just having white light. But yeah, red LEDs have been around for about 50 years now, and engineers are hard at work on new colors all the time. Every new color requires new technology. It's pretty cool. Pro tip, if you ever convert a closet into a podcast studio and there's not a can light inside and there's no like light fixture, you can buy these like 30 to 50 foot strips of LEDs online. I'm sure they're not the quality that George would recommend, but you can just wrap them around your booth. And I mean, I just have, you know, I have equal lighting everywhere because that's the other thing with like being on camera. If you just have one overhead light bulb, then there's these dramatic cast shadows on you. But if you're facing the wall of a closet, you can put a ring of LEDs around the whole thing. So I'm like, I am lit, as the kids say, but not <laughs> in the same context that the kids use it for. So I'm, I'm just, I just have good lighting, I guess. It's not as cool to say, though. <laughs> But it keeps you from getting hot, and that's important. It does. It does. Our writer for today's first story was Cameron Duke. Our managing editor is Ashley Hamer, who is also an audio editor on today's episode. Our producer and lead audio editor is Cody Goff. Join us again tomorrow, and we'll bring you some more bright ideas to help you learn something new in just a few minutes. And until then, stay curious. Stay curious.